welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello, listener. Welcome to episode 175 of Life Science Marketing Radio. I think you'll enjoy this episode regardless of where you sit in the life sciences to healthcare continuum, because as my friend Frank Dolan says, we're all going to be patients at some point. Before we get started, I'm sure some of you are trying to close deals before the end of the year. Others are planning to get next year off to a good start, and some of you have already busted out your crazy Christmas sweaters. I see you. Well, here's something that never goes out of style good conversation. As you think about telling your company story, think about having your CEO or some of your subject matter experts share their thoughts in a recorded conversation. I'll throw in some stocking stuffers like individual video clips and more to spread the joy on all your social media channels. There's a link to my calendar in the show notes. Now, let's jump into my conversation with Betsy Bennett. Okay, Betsy Bennett is a health psychologist and behavior change strategist. She's also the principal at Clarity Consulting. Betsy, welcome. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. So today we're going to talk about how we can connect more meaningfully with patients. But before we get started, so people understand, tell us a little bit about your background in healthcare and wherever else that will be relevant to our conversation. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a clinical psychologist, a clinical health psychologist, which means that I'm licensed and I um, and that means that I have all sort of the basic sort of training that you would expect a clinical psychologist to have. But rather than focusing on sort of traditional areas of mental health, my focus is more on how to help people cope with whatever state their body is in you know, illness, health, somewhere in between, trying to prevent a a state of worse health, um, all sorts of things. So when I was in graduate school, although I did the usual sort of rotations working with patients with serious mental illness or depression or anxiety, most of my work was in places like the oncology clinic or the diabetes clinic, um, working with patients who um, sort of before their health crisis struck, were functioning well and we're now in this place where they probably were still functioning as well as you could imagine given the circumstances but my role and the role of the other health psychologist was how can we make this better for you you know there's no way to make cancer fun there's no way to make a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes feel good but how can we help you do the best with this new reality that we wish you didn't have and that we know you wish you didn't have that makes sense and so then i you know i went and i worked at um i worked as a professor i was at university of pittsburgh i was at university of north carolina where i still am as um adjunct faculty and um worked a lot just trying to figure out things like what do patients want out of their health care how do they feel about what they're getting Um, And then eventually made the leap to do more corporate work, working with um, largely pharmaceutical companies, some medical device companies, on trying to um, help them understand and strategically make use of 
where patients are emotionally when they're dealing with an illness. So that was long. I'm sorry. No, but it was very good and totally makes sense. I think it makes perfect sense for this conversation. And, you know, we all hear so much about being patient focused, but probably not to the level that you're demonstrating, I would say, like about how you think about it. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, really. Yeah. So talk about some of the challenges you see around companies pharma, healthcare, connecting with patients meaningfully? Where, where are we missing the boat? Oh, gosh, we're missing the boat in so many places. <laughs> um, I guess maybe I'll just kind of give two, two examples. So one is just the other day, I was, I don't know, I was on Twitter or something, and it, it might have been Twitter, it might have been Instagram, I'm not sure which. And I was seeing a pharmaceutical company, and fortunately, I don't even have to name names because I can't remember which one it was, and I can't even remember which disease state they were talking about. But um, it was like, oh, we have a tracker for you. We have a symptom tracker. And, you know, I'm not anti-tracker. In fact, when I was um, sick with breast cancer, um, and again, when I had surgery for lung cancer, I was all about my tracker. You know, they have they can be great tools but what's missing is that there isn't the true instruction for how to make sense of the tracker for your own use and how to deliver that information to a physician in a way that they can actually use it i feel like there's a lot of fantasizing about the perfect doctor and there'll be some key opinion leader who'll say, oh, yes, I love it when I get tracker information from my patients. It's like, yeah, well, you're one in a thousand, dude, because um, most doctors are busy, they're rushed. And if you think that they're going to spend their evening pouring over your graphs, you would be wrong. So there are and then you're going to be disappointed and then you're going to be mad and uh, it's all bad. But. There are ways that you can distill that data and put it into sort of snackable chunks for your doctor so that you can get some of the answers that you're looking for. But what I don't see is anyone really teaching patients how to do that. Or even more importantly, that might be something that I could do, but it might not be something that my elderly aunt could do. So in that case, I need to teach her how to identify people in your environment who could do that for you, help you prepare for this appointment? And who do you need to have with you to provide these snackable chunks to your physician? So, you know, there are different skill sets that come into play. And if we think we're just going to put a tracker on a phone, that's just delusional. I mean, it's just not, it's just not reality. So that's kind of one thing. <laughs> All right, let's stop right there. For those of us who are lucky enough to have not needed a tracker, I'm assuming, <laughs> right. right? Right, right. You know, you go through your day, you have some condition, and you're making note of how you feel that day, what you ate that day, um, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to say adverse events, but events that are out of the normal for you. Right. And then someone needs to 
set thresholds. We had a, a similar conversation about digital health recently, which this sort of is, because the amount of data is ridiculous. Right? Yes. And we need to figure out what is important for the doctor to see and make it easy. And hopefully someone can figure that out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, and and even that, I think, is worthy of education and patients don't get enough education on that. Like, well, what, what should I be tracking and why? So there might be things that you track that are just for you. So, for instance, when I was, um, when I was getting chemotherapy, one of the, I mean, I had a variety of bad side effects, like everybody does that, you know, everyone knows it's poison with a good cause, you know, and, and I would definitely track things like um, GI symptoms that were severe for my doctor, you know, she needed to know, was I going to need to go in for fluids, for instance, but then there were other, um, other side effects, like um, one of the agents that I was on produced a terrible, terrible taste in your mouth, and you just couldn't escape it. It was the most, uh, uh, it was a very yucky side effect, I would say. I don't know, I have a better word for it. And, um, and it was very helpful for me to track it because it would happen in a series of days in the middle of my cycle. And so I tracked it right away and it ended up being helpful for the consecutive five cycles because I would know, you know what, this lasts six days. That's all it lasts. So if I know that, then I can get through it. So it was great information rather than just kind of being hit with it every day and go, when is it going to end? I knew when it was going to end. It was going to take six days. And so that, my doctor didn't care. She know that's a standard side effect of one of the drugs I was on. But how helpful for me and my mental health to be able to check off, like, okay, one day's down, you know, um, and, and those sorts of things. Same thing for, like, fatigue levels. Lots of times that's not going to be all that helpful for your doctor unless you're seeing some huge changes. But it's super helpful for you. Do you tend to be more fatigued in the morning or more in the afternoon? Well, then you got to you know, work your schedule around that. So patients need, I think, a lot of education that they don't get when we just hand them an app and tell them, share this with your doctor. Yes. Yeah. The mental health aspect of knowing that bad things do end and knowing when they're going to end. That's just a rule for life. Like if you can always imagine like this will be over at some point and I know when. Um, yeah, that's right. And, and what's interesting to me is as little humans, we are, um, you can see this at work with small children. You know, children have to do things that they don't want to do. But one of the benefits of really structuring a day for a young child is that they know what's going to come next. And that provides a sense of control. And as adults, we're no different. We just want to know what comes next. And so trackers can be very helpful, you know, in, in that regard. Yeah. So you sound like you have an, another example that you were going to go to beyond trackers where we're missing. Them. Yes. And me being me, I'm thinking, what was that other example I was going to come up with? <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I have lots of them. So here's here's another thing that um, that I see very, very frequently is there'll be some 
culture-wide, fad isn't probably the right word because that sounds demeaning and, and they're not always bad things, but they'll be just something that's very popular in the culture. So one that's been really popular for, I don't know, past five years, maybe more, is this idea of um, gratitude, you know, have gratitude. And, um, you know, that's, gratitude is, it's good. Uh, you know, I get that. But you know what you don't want to hear when you're sick? Is someone telling you to cultivate gratitude. Now, thank God, I never had anyone say that to me. But I saw it on a pharma website recently for a really bad disease. And, and I was like, are you kidding me? Um, like, no, don't do that. Um, so um, sort of the nuance in how can you communicate to patients what gratitude really is, how you can't force it, actually, and you could actually make yourself feel worse by trying to force it. But what are some ways to allow gratitude to come to you in an organic and a natural way so that it really does soothe you and it really does produce the desired effect? And that's a whole different lesson from, remember, practice gratitude. You know, um, so that kind of thing, like you have to be very careful about what you what you recommend and, and, and I guess more importantly, how do you recommend it? How do you come to that and, um, and understand how that might be perceived by a patient? Yeah, it's, I can imagine it's a very different thing to see, be grateful or have gratitude on a website with no other context than sitting with a friend of yours and talking about something that makes you happy and them reminding you like there are still things that are okay it's but it's a totally different thing then you should be thankful that you still have all yeah. your limbs yeah um, yeah exactly exactly so let's talk about where the this connection fits in the patient journey i want to know a little bit more about how pharma companies can be helpful and see a return on that effort i mean that that's, it's a business, right? So we want to be right. like any business. You want to help people, but. Right. Yeah. So um, I feel like in my experience, one of the most successful things that I've been involved in, and not just once, but multiple times, were basically um, unbranded, um, unbranded uh, campaigns where um, if you can really connect with a group of patients and really give them something that they're not getting anywhere else, and here's something else I'd say to any pharma client, trust me, they're not getting it anywhere else. If they're lucky, they're getting love and support from their own personal community, but beyond that, and many people don't get that, but they're not getting it from their doctors. They sure as heck aren't getting it from their hospitals. Um, I, that was the other thing I was going to talk about, but that's all right. Uh, we've already covered that. Um, th they, they just aren't getting it. So if you want to talk about unmet needs, here's your unmet need. Bam. And if you can provide that kind of education and even support for patients, 
And then you follow up with, eventually, a link to or some sort of connection to branded content, you at a minimum have their eyeballs. You have their eyeballs because you have given them something truly valuable. And if you come in at some later date and say, hey, guess what? We have this medicine for your condition. Maybe you should talk to your doctor about it. Well, you know what? You probably will. You probably will. And it may or may not be appropriate for you and it may or may not work, but you will probably pay attention to that because every other communication you've gotten from pharma company X is meaningful to you. So I think it's not that hard. Um, but if we keep providing kind of, I don't know, women's magazine kind of drivel, you know, healthy eating, fun recipes, you know, um, gentle exercise. Like, I get that anywhere. That, that doesn't, you know, I'm not saying it's bad for me. I might read it. But it's not, it, it doesn't catch me in that way where I go, wow, they get it. When someone can catch me in that way, they've got my eyeballs for a good long while. That's really um, educational for me in the sense of just the length of the journey for a patient. Because I, you know, I typically picture you get sick, you go to the doctor, there's a diagnosis, there's a therapy. But you've made very clear that even if you get something at first, there's still a long journey. And there's still other opportunities for different therapies and who knows what's uh -huh. coming down the line. And so building that connection through the unbranded content in a way that's meaningful to patients um, is valuable. Yeah, I mean, there's so sides. many people with, yeah, chronic conditions that, um, you know, could last years or a lifetime. And, um, and, you know, those are people that, of course, pharma companies want to serve. They have medications for them. Um, but you know, if you want to get their attention, you have to do something special, I think. Right. So on the patient side, what do, um, what do we need to know about the mental health aspects and relationships to people around you? You and I had a conversation about this. Yeah. What advice do you have for dealing with that? Cause that sounds like a pretty big deal. It is a big deal. I mean, I don't claim to be a neuroscientist, first of all, because I'm not. And second of all, that was never really my strength. But I will say this. I understand enough of it to know that there are some very well-established, really kind of chemical relationships between mood and illness. So when you don't feel well physically, it often follows that you won't feel well um, mentally. And, um, and so right there is something that causes many patients to say to themselves, I don't even know who I am anymore. You know, I used to be so upbeat. I used to be, you know, this or that. And now I'm, I'm weepy, I'm grumpy, you know, what, you know, whatever that might be. And so even being able to teach patients about this and, you know, it's funny, I just posted something on, um, LinkedIn, and I've never posted on LinkedIn before, and I did the other day, because I had read this article about um, that patients who are on active surveillance for prostate cancer um, tend to have higher levels of anxiety, 
and the article kind of went on and there were certain people who were saying um, that, oh yeah, you know, we need to screen them for anxiety disorders. And, and inside I kind of went off because I was like, no, we don't need to screen anybody. Everybody's anxious in that situation. A doctor says to you like, yeah, you got a cancer going on. Now it's not growing that fast, but it's growing. But you know, we're gonna watch it. You know, who, who in their right mind is an, anyone would be anxious with that. And so I, I just kind of feel like, you know what, let's stop this idea of sort of making a pathology out of like, well, some people get anxiety when they have cancer and some people don't. No, everybody feels bad emotionally. Let's start addressing um, what those emotions are. So at a minimum, you can articulate to yourself, oh, this is how I'm feeling. And then you can say, oh, and guess what else? I'm not alone because this is a very predictable and universal type reaction to this thing that's happened to me, you know? And now what? Um, so I don't know. I forgot how I got on that. But, but, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's a, that's a, now I just remembered. So that's how, that's just one place. So then, so there's this new you, right? Who's having to grapple with all these kind of heavy emotions that maybe you didn't have to before. And now you got to make your relationships work. And guess what? The people in a relationship with you, they're grappling with emotions because they're worried about you. So they've got stuff. So you've got new stuff and they have new stuff. And, and then new symptoms that might be scary pop up. And then everyone has more new stuff. There's a lot to navigate. And I don't mean to say that, that couples can't make it work and families and friends can't make it work. Of course they do. But it's so natural that many of us will, um, be, would be grateful for help with that journey, if that makes sense. Yes, it makes total sense. Um, I mean, just to go a little deeper on the conversation you and I had, the thing you haven't said quite as forcefully now is, there will be people who may abandon you because they don't know how to deal with what you're dealing with and oh, their stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's that's a whole other um, that's a whole other piece of this. That yeah, you have people where your illness sparks so much fear on their part that they're out of there. Like, sorry, can't you know? <laughs> sort of like I I I make videos for YouTube. And, um, and of course, I, I think I told you this, I have like, you know, 20 views because I haven't done anything to really promote it, but I put them up there anyway. And, um, and, and one of them, I was talking about this and, and it's kind of like, um, you know what? Someone else's fear is not my problem. It, it just can't be my problem. I got my own fear. And, and I'm trying my best to deal with it. But if someone's going to walk away from me because um, I was discourteous enough to get cancer twice, you know, like, you know what, that's kind of on them. And not to say that you as a person might not have your own sense of grief that comes with that, if that was a relationship that was meaningful to you. But, um, but in many senses, it's like, you know what, that's your signal to pour your energy into those people who are willing to overlook and get past their own fear to be there for you. And, and those people are so incredibly special that 
focusing on them can get you a long way towards getting over the person who walked away. Nice. All right. So um, we talked a little bit about unbranded content. What's your recommendation for how to deploy it? Oh, gosh. So, you know, this is interesting. Everyone wants to do everything digitally now, right? Um, you know, digital, digital, digital. But you know who gets sick a lot? Old people. <laughs> and I'm getting to be an old people myself, but I'm not as old as some old people, right? And, um, and do you know what doesn't work very well when you're old? Your eyes, <laughs> um, maybe your fingers. Putting everything on a phone might not be the best strategy. Um, it might be fine, it, but, but, but I think that it's really important to think in a user experience kind of way. And I don't pretend to be a UX person, but I love UX people because they understand what humans can and can't do and all that. I would recommend that um, whatever your patient population is, you think very, very hard and deep about what they can do. You know, one of the most successful programs I was involved in was for a disease that strikes primarily people 70s and older. And they sent hard copy materials. Smartest thing they ever could have done. Because, and there were so many reasons for it. For instance, like many um, serious chronic illnesses, people would find, you know, patients find that they're sitting there alert one minute and they're kind of sound asleep the next. To have an actual piece of paper in front of you, you've set it down next to the lazy boy. You wake up from that 20 minute nap, you pick it up again. I mean, from a UX perspective, the most unfancy thing is the best thing. We use big print. There were just a, a lot of things that made it ideal for an over 70, over 75, you know, patient population. Lots of times that's not what happens. Uh, we have to go digital is, is the thought. And then even with younger populations, again, depending on the condition, hard copy might be better. It just might be, might not either, but it might be. So it, it just takes a lot of thought. And, you know, depending on sort of what your analytics people tell you, if a disease has a wide age range, you might even do both and segment it. Yeah, no, that's great advice. I mean, we joke about our parents printing out everything. I mean, I know when my parents were still around. They printed out all the emails, very large type. And there's a reason, right? There's a so. reason. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Last question. So what is your advice to agencies with regard to producing the content that's actually valuable for the patient? Oh, gosh, so much. Um, <laughs> my first advice is would be at a very high level. So um, on the off chance that someone who's high, high, high up in, this, in an agency is listening to this, I would say start hiring older, experienced people for your teams so that you have age diversity in your teams, true age diversity. I mean a bunch of people over 50, over 55. Um, 
not that there's anything wrong with people under 35. There's not. It's diversity is better. So I think that so many of the teams are just very young people. They're under 40s. Ad agencies in general have, I think, a well-earned reputation of being sort of a young person's business. In healthcare, that's very much to their detriment. You really need people on there who have been full-time caring for an elderly parent. You need people like me who've been hit by a couple of diseases. You know, you need those things. And for a crowd that's largely under 35 or 40, they don't have, they haven't been, their bodies aren't old enough yet. So with a rare exception of someone on your team who might have had a condition or lived with a grandparent, um, you just get people who don't understand it and put things on websites like cultivate gratitude. They have no idea how bad that sounds because they themselves have never been truly sick. Um, so that would be number one. You know, get some diversity. Age diversity is so important. So that would be number one. Um, number two, I would say, um, is, you know, in your market research, spend a little bit more to talk to people who maybe aren't on panels necessarily, or spend a little more for a really good panel. Because if you keep going to sort of the cheapest source for your research, what you get are people who are very involved and kind of uncommonly active when it comes to managing their disease state and they are not representative of who you need to be talking to. Not to say that they can't still offer you really good information, but just like you need a diversity in your teams, you need a diversity in the subject pool of people who you're going to listen to. Um, likewise, pay a little bit extra to have a really, really, really good moderator. Because if you have a not very good moderator, you won't really get to the meat and you won't get what you need to know from, uh, you know, from your uh, patients that you're, that you're privileged enough to speak to. So research, 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 spend a little more time, spend a little more money. You will not be sorry because you will learn what's gonna land. You're gonna learn what's gonna be meaningful. And sometimes people don't know what they need or want until they're interviewed by someone who understands a little bit about that. Nice. Well, this has been exceptional. I'm going to say, I mean, I love the clarity of your answers and therefore the best named business that has ever been on this podcast. Oh, that's hilarious. Thank you. I mean, you just went right to it on every one of those things. I mean, if, if people don't get something out of this, that's on them because... Your answers were so clear and to the point. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. This was fun. I feel like I just got a license to sort of spout. <laughs> no, I think it's, uh, I, you know, it's one of those episodes. I don't think people are going to turn off. I mean, it just kept going. And a really clear journey or look into a patient journey. I mean, you from a lot of different angles. So Betsy Bennett, thank you so much. 
Well, thank you so much. You take care. All right. Hey, I want to thank everyone who has supported my content for the last eight years. Whether you're a subscriber to one of my podcasts or whether you share my content on LinkedIn. I want to let you know that I'll likely be merging LSMR with CC Life Science over the holidays if I don't screw it up somehow. No action needed on your part. You'll just get everything in one feed. I'll make clear which are marketing episodes and which are science, AI, and everything else. Think of it as a newspaper with different sections. Remember those? I'll be back soon with another episode. Bye-bye.